this morning, God did one of those things he does in my life from time to time. Not very often, but from time to time. And he woke me up and he said, that sermon that you put together, we're going to change things. And I'm like, what? You can't do that. And God says, yeah, I can. So what I'm giving you this morning, I feel is as directly from him as I can give. But I need a little help this morning. So we're going to join ourselves in unity and identifying ourselves as those who follow Christ. So if you'll stand up with me. And we're going to repeat after me. By the power and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command. We're not suggesting. But we command that any and all evil... Get out of here. For my mind is a quiet place. It's a holy place where only Jesus and I can talk. And my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Father, we just call upon you and our identity as Christians, as people who are people of the book and followers of your son, Jesus Christ, and we ask, Lord, that you would open our minds and our hearts to the word that you have for us today. Father, I'm an empty vessel for your spirit, and I pray, Lord, that I will say exactly what you want me to say. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a seat, please. So for the past 10 weeks, Josh Casey, Doug Fern, Thomas Hoke, and myself, we've been preaching through a series on sanctification trying to, in the best way that we could, through story, through scripture, through compulsion, to challenge us to live according to what God wants us to do. That's what sanctification is about, is becoming more Christ-like. And we've talked about how God sent forth his son to die for us on the cross, how we live our lives in Christ. We're immersed in Jesus. How our old man has gone to the cross with Jesus and is dead now. And because of that, we are able to inherit everything that God intended for his son to inherit. And now the grace of God, the mercy of God is so powerful that through the Holy Spirit, Jesus lives in us. And because of all that, we are trying to conform to his image. We try day after day. For 10 weeks, we've been talking about this. And it's like God said to us, stand aside, boys. I've got a sermon of my own. And this week, God cleared his throat. Right? For the past six months, he's been clearing his throat. You see, we can't hear it. We don't hear God. And the reason is, is because God is speaking to us, his church, the redeemed, the set apart, the ecclesia, the gathering, those who identify with Jesus Christ. You say, well, he's been speaking quite loudly to the entire world. Yeah, but they're not listening, right? 
they're not listening. They don't have what it takes to hear. But you do. I do. We do. We can hear God. And he is speaking like I have never heard him speak in my lifetime before. I, if you watch the news and you listen to things, you'll hear people say, well, this is a first. This is a first. And we, we've sat by as we've watched God do these amazing things. And the way I see it and the way I think God is wanting us to see it is that he is removing from our lives every step of the way idols. Things that get in the way of us hearing God or seeing God. Uh, he took away our jobs. We can't go to work. For some of us, he took away our ability to have fun. We can't go out to eat. We can't go to movies. How many reruns can we watch? How many of the same movies over and over? I'm finding myself watching reruns of Jeopardy. Holy cow. And I'm loving it. There's something wrong, right? And he's not done. This last week, he took away even that ability, right? No power. I can't get on my phone. I can't get on my computer. There's no Wi-Fi. Is it possible to live the Christian life without social media? God is just running through them. Some of us, he's taken away our health. Let's not forget that COVID, first and primarily, is an issue of our health. How frightened are we to live one more day? Or the possibility of not living one more day? And because of that fear, we sometimes don't listen to God. And then we look at the culture wars going on around us. And it makes us mad. I can't even watch the news right now. I'm so tired of people talking and trying to convince us from the left and from the right, this is the right way to go. This is the right way to think. And all we see is things aren't right. Something's not right. Brothers and sisters, I think God is talking to us as his church. God clearing his voice. We think this has been an amazing series of events. So powerful. And yet really it's just God moving his little finger. It's nothing for him. We thought that we were so advanced that our science, our technology, our way of life was untouchable. And God has come forward and said, not quite. God is going to do what God's going to do. And I know there are a lot of theologians and others who's coming forth and saying, oh, this is what happens every time there's a major crisis. Someone stands up in the church and says, oh, watch out, Jesus is returning. I can't tell you that I know Jesus is returning tomorrow or next week. I'm not even trying to insinuate that. But it's possible. It always is possible. He will come back in his time. But what I can say with absolute confidence is that God is using these events to purify, to awaken, to get a hold of his people. 
as God was talking to me this morning, one thing that became really clear to me was that how much we imitate what I've seen before in the pages of Scripture. Immediately, the story of the prophet Moses came to my mind. And most of us here have probably been through all the Sunday school lessons and we've made our little reed baskets, you know, to put the baby Moses in and he floats along the Nile and Pharaoh's daughter is there to uh, pick him up and to take him home. And this Hebrew child who is escaping certain death because the Pharaoh is tired of God's covenant people living in his midst, that he wants every male son killed. God rescues this one. And when he's pulled from the river Nile and he's taken home to the palace of Pharaoh to be raised with all of his day's luxuries and technologies and their way of life, their wealth, God even bestows upon him an Egyptian name. You shall be called Moses. His identity as a Hebrew temporarily covered, dismissed, forgotten if it was ever known. And one day, not as a young man, sometimes it's portrayed in the movies and stuff, like he's 18, 19, he loses his temper, and he kills an Egyptian taskmaster who is abusing a fellow Hebrew slave. But no, Moses is like 40 years old. He's a man. He knows exactly what he's doing. And because of his action, of his rash temper, he flees into the Midian wilderness which we are told that he stays as a shepherd tending other people's sheep for almost 40 years. Now what do you suppose Moses was doing during those 40 years? It wasn't just watching sheep. It was learning to listen for God. His life had been turned upside down. His life had been radically changed. He no longer had the command of servants and the best of the land. He was in the wilderness. And I'm sure he spent a lot of that time sitting and talking to God and thinking about God and wondering about God and what is he doing? Why is my life so upside down, so topsy-turvy? And one day... At the end of that 40 years, Moses sees a bush, and it's on fire. It appears to be on fire. And a voice speaks to him from that bush and gives him a new purpose, a new commission. Basically, he says, remember who you are. I created you. You have a plan, and it's not to watch sheep your whole life. My plan for you is to lead your people that you really never lived with out of slavery and into the promised land. We're going to continue that journey that kind of experienced a hiccup in the days of your forefathers, Jacob, when they moved into Egypt. But now we're going to pick up the story again, and you're going to play a major role. And I want you to remind my people this is what they're for that I'm still their God, they're still my people, we still have a covenant between us, an unbroken promise that I made to Abraham, their forefather, and I plan and promise that I will fulfill it.
And Moses, for all of his wisdom and listening skills, says, what, me? Who? Me? Yes, you. Yes, you. I want you to do this. And I don't know what kind of courage it took to go back into Pharaoh's court as a wanted man, as a man who totally left that lifestyle, now has a wife, now has children. He's identified totally in a different culture. But he had to go in there, and what did the children of Israel see? They saw example after example after example of God clearing his throat, moving his little finger. He turned the lifeblood of that nation, the river Nile, into blood. He brought plague after plague after plague after plague. And eventually, on one night, when he told his people, make sure that you're identified by the mark of the blood of the Lamb on your doorposts, because I'm coming and I'm sending my angel of death, and every firstborn son in this land is going to be killed. And the people of Israel, for the first time, did that. They celebrated Passover together. What a deal. What would it have been like to have been alive then, to be just a common person in Israel, to be a slave in Egypt, and to see all of a sudden your prayers are being answered. I don't know who this crazy man is from the wilderness, but wow, he has God's ear. Wow, he must really listen to the Father. And the people of Israel pack everything up that they have and they march towards the promised land. And you've heard this story so many times. But as you know, when they get to that Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is chasing them, God does something, that probably one of the greatest miracles in all of Scripture. He moves those waters apart and the children of Israel pass on dry land up to the other side of the Red Sea. And just as Pharaoh's chariots get there, that water collapses right upon them, wiping out the chase. And now you read the Song of Moses. The daughters of Israel are gathered hand in hand, singing the praises of God. Look what he's done. He's wonderful. He's great their own little worship service right there on the plains of the Negev. And off they march. But you know what we discover in the next chapter of this story is that the Israelites, having identified with the culture that they were raised in, that Egyptian culture for so many years, having been part of that, they found it almost impossible to get out of it. Yes, certainly they were physically removed, but getting it out of their hearts, trusting God. God, we don't have enough bread. Well, I sent you manna. God, we're tired of bread. I'll send you quail. God, that's too much meat. I can't handle this. God, who's this leader anyway? He doesn't really represent you, does he? I mean, this is crazy. Let's party. And Moses breaks those Ten Commandments in frustration and anger because the children of Israel seemingly would rather go back to worshiping the senseless, material gods of Egypt 
than the Holy Father that led them out of their slavery. It now was in their presence as a pillar of cloud, as a pillar of fire. We can't handle this. Let us go back to the land where we were slaves. Let us go back to the land of leeks and onions. We liked it there. I know, we were working hard and Pharaoh wasn't just and there was all these problems, but man, at least I knew when I got up in the morning what I was supposed to be doing. I knew by the time I went to bed what I was going to be doing tomorrow. Are you sure that we're supposed to be out here? Moses sends out the 12 spies into the promised land to bring back a report and they say, there's giants out there, we can't handle them. It's too much for us. They're going to kill us. This God you keep talking to, Moses, we've never seen him. Who is this Jehovah? Who is this Elohim? We don't know him. So what's God's solution? They march for 40 years. They just follow that pillar of cloud, that pillar of fire. And they are instructed on what it means to be really God's covenant people. Moses is so frustrated. This is not what he signed up for. He wanted these people to launch forward. They'd seen so many miracles. They'd seen the very power of God. Unlike anyone else who had ever been born, they saw the power of God. And still, they liked the life that they had known. What is God doing today? He's taken away the life that we've known, right? All those things that we took comfort in, all those things that we rejoiced in, things that made life worth living, we would have said, God has one by one taken them away. Maybe I'm speaking just for myself, but I feel God's conviction in my heart. I feel him saying, David, Things are going to change. You've got a choice. You respond to this change, or you go back into bondage, back into slavery, into this culture. It's like you've gone to uh, an eye doctor, and there's a bright light, and you have a series of lenses between you and that light. Well, actually, in fact, the Apostle Paul says something very very similar to that. He says, back in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he said, When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, at some point, we're going to see face to face. God is trying to show himself to us right now, to his church. And we can't see because, oh, wait a minute, I have TV in the way. Oh, wait a minute, I've got my job in the way. I'm trying to live to the same standard as my neighbors. I've got my house. I've got my cars. I've got my desire for vacation. I have um, the foods that I like to eat that I can't buy anymore. I have my health that is so important to me that I won't submit it to God. And I've got all these things that are getting in the way of that ultimate vision. And the truth is, as he's been removing these idols and these, these mirrors from our, our eyes, the brightness of God is so strong. It's so powerful that we can hardly stand to look at it. It's, it's like the sun shining on my face right now. I can't stand to look at it. It's too bright. Why? Because there's too much sin in my heart. 
God is holy. He is just. Oh, he's love. Make no mistake about that. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. We know that verse. But to see him as people called out of slavery, as people called out of bondage, we are supposed to live that new life. And we can't. We're quickly looking around on the floor. Where are those lenses? I want to put them back in place. I just got to find something so that life will go back to the way I knew it. Was life the way you knew it, the way that God wanted you to live it? My entire life in ministry, I've been an associate pastor. I determined a long time ago my calling was to help families disciple, train, oversee their children so they could be sensitive to what God is telling that child and be used by God in a mighty and powerful way. But you know what gets in the way of that? More than anything else, it's not the sin of our culture, it's not pornography, it's not gambling, it's not any of the other things that we could think of, which I'm sure there's 300 of them, is the busyness of life. As parents, we're i got to get my kid to all these different things, to dance, to football, to baseball, to softball. I've got to make sure that they're involved in 16 hours of really good, hard education. I want them to be prepared for what? Not to hear God. How can you hear God when your lives are going at 100 miles an hour? My real question to you this morning is, are you listening to God when your lives aren't going 100 miles an hour because if you're not hearing God now you're never going to hear God yeah people my culture my generation the baby boomers we're so busy thinking about the flag and kneelings and burnings and whatever we've identified our culture with Christ and that cannot be Jesus will stand on his own doesn't matter what the rest of the world is doing. They're not of the church. But older church people seem to be more of the culture. It's not your calling to defend this country. Your calling is to defend Jesus Christ and that gospel. Your calling is to spread it, to give others that opportunity for grace. Just as Frank read this morning in Ephesians. What a privilege, what an opportunity. But we can't do that in our own strength, in our own power. And our biggest excuse when we come to the end of the day to God was, I fully intended to do that. That was my desire, but I got busy. Some of us, our main idol is busyness. We wake up in the morning and we're proud of the fact that we have 15 things to do before the day ends. If we're not busy doing all these different things, then I can't prove to everyone else that I'm a super person, that I'm better than you, that I'm worth the money that I earn. The question we have to ask ourselves when we get up every morning is, what does God want from me today? What does God want from this church today? What is he saying to us? You have an opportunity, unlike anyone else has had, I think, in the years that this country has been around, by the disruption of normal life, to ask God, what? What 
And if you're satisfied when you have that conversation with him that he is saying, oh, you're fine. Don't worry about it. This is all for other people. It has nothing to do with you. Then fine. Go back to the life that you knew. See, we're, we're so busy wondering, when is my life going to come back the way I knew it that we do not anticipate maybe living a life that we have never known. Like Moses, right? He wasn't prepared for this. He didn't know what God was calling him to, but God was calling him to something different. And he was calling the children of Israel to something they hadn't experienced, which was the presence of God on a daily basis, telling them that they needed to do this and this and this. And a lot of this was shedding themselves of their Egyptian bondage to that culture. And I think God is calling his church to doing the same thing. Let's shed ourselves of the culture that we live in. We don't need to return to that life. Parents, are you discipling your kids during this time of quietness? Are you anticipating school with joy because somebody else's job will now be to take your kids on? Husbands, are you looking forward to the return of busyness so that you don't have to have those conversations with your wife in which you confess your sin and you admit that you're not the husband that you should be and that you need to restore some things? You see, into that busyness, we have all kinds of excuses. Well, this divorce is okay. God knows he wants me to be happy. These kids... Well, I'd like to take care of them better, but, man, I work 60 hours a week, 70 hours a week. I don't know how I can be everything to them. Change your lives. That church, I'd like to be more involved. I'd like to do things. I'd like to see this church energized for the gospel, for things for Christ. But I'm mad at them right now. I'm really mad at them. People. Jesus is the head of the church. You can be mad at me. You can be mad at elders. You can be mad at the pastors. It doesn't matter. Jesus is the head of the church. It is not an optional membership. You don't have a choice. There is nothing. If it's not the church, there is nothing. That's what the Word of God says. Jesus sees this church as his bride. He loves it. Some of you have been rather newly married. And on that day that your groom looked down the aisle and saw you getting ready to walk up towards him, his heart, I hope, was filled with great joy, right? Like a, a humble joy. I don't deserve this woman. The other night, uh, I was looking at my wife as we were going to bed, and I just, I just, it overwhelmed me. Who am I? God blessed me with a princess with a woman of his that is so mature in Christ and so powerful in the word of God. And what have I done? I'm not worthy. I have to make those efforts to renew these relationships. Jesus looks at us as the church and he wants us unified. He wants us energized. We should be powerful for him. The war is not in here. The war is out there right? It's the unsaved world that needs to hear the gospel in love, in grace. That's the only culture war that we're called to, believe it or not. 
I'm going to finish this morning by looking at a passage that God laid on my heart earlier this week. It's found in Matthew chapter 25. And it's a parable that many of us, again, are very familiar with. It's the parable of the talents. Now, I'll say this to you. I have been in the Word of God steadily since 1974. And this probably I find to be a passage that I avoid at all costs. It is scary. Because as we've been talking about sanctification, we realize the goal is glorification. I want to go to heaven. I want to see Jesus face to face. Oh, at that moment, so many wonderful things are going to happen. When I pass from this life and go into that life, oh, I get my eye back. Right? Some of you, your depression, your anxiety, mental illness, your physical deformities and frailties, they're gone. Wow. I'll see people that I haven't seen in decades. What a reunion. I'll get to ask certain questions that I've always had for God. And I'm sure I'm going to be surprised. So surprised at those that I see there. Those that are loving God. Because I didn't think that was ever going to happen. But to get there, there's a gap. Right? There's, I became a Christian, justification. Went on through sanctification, trying to be more Christ-like. And then there's glorification, if I do it, right? Because I've got the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ in my life. And then Jesus tells this parable, and you're trying to, what in the world is he doing? It's called the parable of the talents, and I'm not going to read it because it's quite a lengthy story. But basically, a master comes from a faraway land, and he has three servants that he picks to come forward. And these servants are gifted servants in the area of business. And he blesses them, one with five talents of gold, one with two, and one just with one, right? Now, a talent of gold back in that day, you know, if you measure the gold ounces and so forth, today it would be one talent would be about $800,000. So this isn't just a small investment. And then he leaves after telling his, his servants to do good stuff with my money. And when he returns, to make this story a little shorter... He calls each man forward. And the first two have doubled their master's investment in them. They've doubled the money. But the third one, it says, because he lived in great fear of his master and dared not risk losing the investment, he just buries it in the ground. There's no return. Just what he gave him. And the master coming back at him says, no, it wasn't fear that kept you from doing what the other servants did, right? He seems to imply that, in fact, it was indolence or laziness. You just were lazy. And so he says, take away his talent, give it to the others, and that servant is dismissed and then Jesus comes back with these very strong strong words at the end of this parable and he says uh, for to everyone who has will more be given 
and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and casts the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That parable scares me. I know there's no condemnation in Christ, but I think of the expectation that the Heavenly Father has on me, that he has on you, that he has on us as a church. He expects a return on his investment. And what's been his investment? Well, obviously his son, Jesus Christ. And to make sure that investment has a chance of succeeding, he's given us his Holy Spirit. Oh, wow. And what have we done with it? We've gotten busy. We've gotten distracted. There's so many things I would like to do. How many guys did I see... <clears throat> And when I was doing high school ministry that went forward and dedicated their life to Christ at a missions conference, at a Bible conference, I'm going to serve you, God, with the rest of my life. And 20 years later, they work at Menards. It's not that working at Menards is a bad thing. It's just they lost sight of what was possible with God. They didn't really believe him. Like the Israelites, they decided, no, nah, I, I, I want to go back home. Even if it means slavery, I want to get back into that. Let's not be in a rush to reclaim our lifestyles the way it was before COVID. Let's use this time instead to think really about what is God calling me to do? Let's listen to what he has to say. You be in the word. We don't need a burning bush. We have the living word of God. Right? Right? He tells us everything that we need to know. And if you feel unable, incompetent, whatever word you want to use to be in this word, then learn. Take advantage of the studies that are being offered. Find someone that you respect who is in the word. You don't have to become a Bible scholar. You just have to have the ability to listen. And then secondly, pray. Say, God, like Moses sitting on the side of a hill watching sheep, I'm sitting in my house in my pajamas and I've got nothing going on today. Oh, wait a minute. I have an appointment with you. I want to hear from you today. Lord, open my eyes. Open my ears that I may see, that I may hear. Father, continue to remove these idols out of the way. As painful as it is to see you in your holiness, I want that. I must have that. I want to live that radical life for you. Father, I sacrifice everything that I have in my life for you. This week, as I close here, my oldest daughter and her baby, Edmund, who's eight months old, are visiting us for a week. And as I was going through this, I was just thinking, man, what if my generation has biffed it, right? What if we're the ones wandering through the wilderness and we're not hearing God? No matter what he does, we're not listening. But who is going to help him hear? Who's going to teach Edmund? I'm so excited about what God's going to be doing. I hope it's with the church that exists today, but if not, that church that will be here tomorrow, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be powerful because Jesus Christ is awesome and powerful. Let's submit to him today. Father, we thank you for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. I just give you all praise and glory.
Father, thank you for what you're doing to remove the idols from our lives. And instead of resenting that and rejecting it, Father, may we embrace it. May we ask for you to remove more from our life, not less, so that we can walk after you, so we can hear through your word what you're saying to us and to this church, so that we can live in obedience. We love you. Jesus, come quickly. Amen.